What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Zero Hour. This is Mark Fiert, your co-host. And this is Christine Chapman, your host. And today... What do we have on today? We have Jordan Rochelson calling in. Are you in New York or are you somewhere else today, Jordan? No. So it's always good to ask me because honestly, I'm depending on the day, I'm in a different state. But right now I'm in Coconut Grove in Miami, Florida. Ooh, fancy what pants. Is the what is the weather like in Florida? Um, what am I doing there? I am. My mother came to town for the weekend. Mm-hmm. I missed Mother's Day. Uh, so me and my wife, we're, we're taking her out. We're, we just had a lovely lunch. Going to do a little shopping. And, uh, You're such a mensch. <laughs> you are such a mensch. That's awesome, man. No, For, you really are. I try to be. All right. I got, I got to throw it out there, Christine. I, I just have to. Okay. I got, I got to start with this. All right. Jordan from yes. Strong Island. Who's your favorite yes, musician? Sir. I mean, you want me to say Billy Joel, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to say I love Billy Joel. Oh, snap. I mean, listen, the guy had formative impact on my childhood, as does anyone from the island. Uh, You know, I saw moving out. I I, uh, show my true colors as a Billy Joel fan. Uh Um, But I am indeed a strong islander. Excellent. So I want to try to settle an argument from... Christine, who is from uh, Canada, right? Mm-hmm. And she says words like process and progress. The, mm-hmm. the, the settlement is, and Jordan and David Bowler are proof positive, that everyone from Long Island is a Billy Joel fan. Is that true, Jordan? Wow. You know, is it like, or or can we give props to the sensitive men from Long Island and make whoa, whoa, some whoa, assumptions whoa, whoa. around that? I don't think liking Billy Joel and being sensitive are mutually exclusive necessarily. Boom. Um, That's true. I think that, here's what I think. I I like Billy Joel. He comes on. I definitely sing along. And I imagine there are some cynical Long Islanders that like to think like, ah, it's, you know, it's tap. It's not that interesting. But they're tapping their foot along too. And come on, man. Piano Man is a, you know, an important song in the history of American music. So, uh, Facts and truth. Thank you. He's he's a unifying figure. I think that's needed in in music and arts. Check is in the mail, my friend. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So, so Jordan, can you give us a little bit of origin story to guide us? And and do you mind if I share a little bit about how you and I came to meet? Because we met through work. Um, Sure. I I met Jordan, uh, was it a year ago, perhaps? Just under. Just under a year ago, and we, um, I was hired by a family for um, placement to secondary schools, and Jordan has the very interesting job of being a teacher um, who works specifically for families. And this is, I would imagine, we're going to go to that zero hour, Jordan, but... Mm-hmm. Um, we have had this opportunity to to work. The synergy was right. We've had opportunities to collaborate. And I almost immediately, because of the kind of person you are and the kind of passionate educator you are, um, I almost immediately invited you to join the board of my nonprofit, the College Access Project, where you have just been Shameless a plug. tremendously instrumental and impactful um, young and new board member 
already. So I'm so grateful to have you here and to have you here talking to us about the zero hour that sort of led you to where you are and for you to tell us where you're about to go as you move forward. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and thank you for that Um, very kind introduction. Um, Christina and the feeling is mutual. I mean, you are an unbelievable friend and mentor who I'm valuable to have in my life, uh, incredibly grateful to have in my life. And and, and the, the board work we're doing is, is great. Yes, shameless plug for that. Yes, no I'm sorry. I needed to make a shameless, shameless plug. No shame. All right, are you too done? Um, are you too done with the love fest? Right. We do have a love <laughs> yeah, fest. Just, I do. I do. We just, adore can Jordan. we? All right, because you didn't want to talk anymore about Billy Joel, so now you throw in the okay shameless plug. <laughs> Listen. I, I'll give oxygen to the fire that's keeping me going, and, yes. and Christine Listen, keeps me going more than Billy Joel. I'm going to give you some oxygen right now. I'm, I'm going to do a sure. bit of a bit of a bit of a backdrop. On you, okay. right? Based off of some sure. of the conversations we have. So, uh, Jordan, obviously from Port Wash, right? Obviously yes. from representing the island that is strong. So we call it Strong Island. Um, and uh, Jordan's got a family. He's got brothers. He's got a wife. But Jordan is um, took a different path, right? Uh, yeah. A different entrepreneurial path of sorts. Um, and this dates back to when you were 12 years old doing stand-up comedy. So uh, I'm going to put you on a spot right now. I'm going to give you time to think. Tell me a joke. Um, I'll tell you a joke. Go ahead. Yes, he will. A 12-year-old doing stand-up comedy. That's a joke. Um, Fantastic. I love it. There it is. All right. Um, but no, I mean, that, that, that is really kind of very much, you know, I suppose where the origin starts in a lot of ways. Um, that's certainly, you know, what I tell my therapist as, as the kind of turning point, um, yes, we all. <laughs> my life. Um, but no, I mean, it started when I just moved to Nassau County from Suffolk County, uh, at a young age. And, you know, we had heard about this comedy club that was kind of opening it up for, for kids to go into the city, Gotham comedy club at this program. I think the program actually is still running Gotham comedy uh, club. And, huh? and it became a, sorry, Gotham comedy club, Gotham comedy Love club, that. which is, a legit comedy club, like you know, a lot of big stars go there, and it was cool that they were opening the stage for for people that just wanted to kind of try it out. And um, my parents were really encouraging, and and they knew that I kind of enjoyed the spotlight, as it were. And um, who doesn't? You know, encouraged Shit. me to be writing jokes and 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 refining those jokes, and That's awesome. and uh, going in front of live audiences two times a month to. To see what worked, and more often what didn't work. That's great, dude. Did you also do some singing between maybe the ages of fourteen and eighteen? Like yeah. serious singing, so, right? Yeah, I was uh, I was studying music pretty seriously for uh, most of my teenage years. Uh, I was so, you know, it's a pretty common question, like when teachers are going on job interviews, you know, like, oh, well, who's a teacher that really shaped you? And and the the teacher that always comes to mind was my. Um, the music teacher, the choral teacher at Great Neck South High School. Cause I, was, I went to high school in Great Neck. I lived in Fort, my family lives in Fort Washington now. Mm-hmm. Um, and the music teacher there, Dr. Pamela Levy, who I think is still teaching, is just this absolute kind of just energizer bunny of a teacher. <laughs> you know, whenever we've all met these teachers who yes. are just so indefatigable, who just like constantly believe their students can do amazing things if you just give them the the encouragement and the time and the resources. And she staged full length foreign language operas at our school, at our, we were not a magnet school for arts or singing. We were just the local public school, but she really believed that 
if she kind of showed us that we could do it, we could do it. And we did. I mean, and my brother was doing it as well. And, and so in the time, so I sang an opera in German. I sang an opera, two operas in Italian. I sang an opera in French. Um, can I get a German really, version? Can I get a couple of notes, a couple of bars, please? It will not sound good. Okay, I don't cool. know how bad the sound levels are right now, but it would get worse because I haven't practiced. But, I, you know, I loved it, and, and uh, I, I really felt like I had a passion, and so I would then spend the weekends going into the city, and, and I'd study opera at Manhattan School of Music on the weekends. Wow. Um, and uh, I studied a little bit in college, but then uh, I, went to college, I went to University of Michigan for acting, because uh, as much as I loved singing, it kind of felt a little bit like I was a... I went from being a big fish in a small pond to being just like a, a little tadpole in the ocean yeah. uh, at the university level. What um, did you but, decide to study at Michigan? What did I decide or when did I decide? Excuse me. What did you decide to study and well, when I did you decide with to acting. study? You did. I started with acting. Um, and, uh, you know, I was in the acting building <laughs> and uh, I, I, as much as I loved musical theater and singing at the time, again, I just didn't quite have it, um, but I still wanted to be a performer in some regard, and the acting program was, was also very good. Yes. And studied there for two years, and then I switched to English to my final two years at Michigan. So do you switch to English because you now know what you want to be when you grow up like as, and what you no, are today? No, not at all. Okay. Not at all. No, I, I switched to English, honestly, as a purely logistical move. Um, yeah. I realized you know, for whatever reason, my kind of passion for acting was really dwindling um, and felt like I, I don't think I can do this forever. And, and I remember my freshman year acting teacher saying, in order to be an actor, you need to like 100% of the job and 95% of the job is hearing the word no. Yeah, And that's I hard. just remember thinking like, I can't do it. I don't have that. I don't have that gut motivation. Like this, this is the this is the air I breathe. I just didn't feel that way. Um, and so I switched to English purely logistically. I said, what's going to allow me to graduate on time? Yep. Um, and that was the one that gave me, you know, where my credits were transferable. And, you know, simply put, like, English had come naturally to me in a lot of ways. Like, I enjoyed reading. I was a pretty good writer. Yep. You speak uh, it. This, I speak it. You speak, uh, and you speak it well, well and have a fantastic vocabulary, by the way. Well, I have my, my mother to thank for that because um, she was a, a linguistics person her whole life. Um, but, uh, so yeah, it was just so I could graduate on time. And, and I thought that I would go from there into business or journalism because yeah. I did a lot of that in college as well. So, you know, it was definitely not, oh, I'm going to be an English teacher. That was, that was not on the, on the forefront of my mind at all. Okay. So I'm going to take you to, you graduate from Michigan okay. and you do what go where before the zero hour happens and what is your zero hour okay so um after michigan um i was i was fairly certain i was going to move back to new york but it, it was not set in stone i applied for teach for america uh to teach in detroit um just didn't go that uh didn't work out but yep. uh i did get accepted into the nbc universal page program um and wow. the thing that's most recognizable about that is if you've ever watched 30 rock Kenneth from 30 Rock was a page. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And and it's a real program. It's a lot like a fifth year of college. It's a lot like an internship. Um, you get exposure to a lot of different areas of the uh, entertainment industry, of the news and media industry. 
marketing and and um, writing and production and um, all the kind of nuances that go into putting on a TV show. And it was fascinating. It was a lot of fun. I made some great friends there that I'm still friends with to this day. Um, and I went from there to working uh, in talent management, um, working kind of, you know, for uh, a talent manager, being her assistant, helping actors kind of get jobs on Broadway and film and TV. What was uh, that like? like? <laughs> well, I would say that, you know, the, the cliche portrayals of agency work are somewhat true, mm-hmm. um, but not, you know, it's, it's like 40% true and 60% not true, which is that the 40% that's true is like, it's intense. Yep. Um, the stakes are high. Yep. Um, and the other 60% is that, you know, people are actually really sweet and really nice and want to help you succeed. Um, it, at least in my limited experience, it was not a cutthroat, people are going to kind of, you know, step on your toes to get ahead kind of scenario. Yep. You know, the company I was at was fairly small, but, but successful. And, and it was a real family oriented place. And I'd worked at William Morris. I'd worked at CBS in internship capacities, and, and this was a much neater fit for me. I was never going to be great in a large corporate structure. Yep. Um, I, I, to this day, the thing that kind of, you know, a through line through my career, no matter what it's been, has been like, I need a, a job where I feel like I have strong relationships. Yeah. Um, and that company allowed for it. But, the, you know, that it was there that I had my zero hour, which was, you know, I'd been an assistant for two years. Um which is not, a, you know, a long time. Many people are assistants for years and years before they move up or they're, right. they're, they're career assistants and, and that's wonderful and then, and they're great at it and I was just not great at it. <laughs> uh, really stressed and, and, um, you know, the day finished and I was just exhausted. I was just wiped. I had, I was drinking five to six cups of coffee a day yep. all while sitting, by the way. It's not like I needed that to run a marathon. Right. Um, just drained. Um, but on the weekend, um, just to like pick up some extra cash. And also because I'd always been kind of good at it, I was working at a kid's gymnasium on the Upper West Side doing kids' birthday parties. Yep. Um, and, you know, I was I just done 9 to 5 Monday through Friday, and then on the weekends I would do another 9 to 5. But the only difference was that at the 9 to 5 where I was cleaning diapers, inflating balloons, and cutting cake and doing you somersaults, happy. I, came, I came home so happy. I came home energized. I wow. came home fulfilled. So, and, so Jordan, how how long were you doing both nine to fives before you cut one of the cords? Uh, probably like a month. It was uh, such a quick realization. It was like a. It is so obvious. Maybe two months. It, it, it's so obvious to me. Like this is this feels right. Okay. I, I, I'd like to say that I went through some long PowerPoint process of determining what a career change should look like, but it was the gut instinct of all gut instincts and. Fortunately, it was the right one because eight years later, and I'm still in education. So, so um, you're you're still relatively young in in your career, right? So, <laughs> listen, I still say I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, right? And I think right. you know a, a lot of us. Well, I don't know whether a lot of us do or not, but you have been fortunate enough to see what drove or drives and motivates you, and you made that decision early on, right? Mm-hmm. And it's been eight years, as as, as you just said. So it feels like it's still the right decision, right? Obviously. Absolutely. Um, Which is not to say that the past eight years have been entirely, like, perfect. It's not to say that it's been without struggle. It's just that when you're in a career that's fulfilling, the struggle feels purposeful. Um, The struggle feels like it's to a greater end. 
Okay, um, but you didn't. But you didn't just decide that you were going to run birthday parties and cut cake. You've done some really interesting things that yeah. have taken a lot of courage, and that have potentially been source of struggle on many different levels, especially personal, considering the travel that I know you do a lot of. Well, you know, well, I appreciate that, 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 and I'm aware that, yes, there's a certain level of courage. I, I think I'd, I'd be remiss to not point out the position of privilege that I come from to be able to take these career leaps. I come from an upper-middle-class family on Long Island where if I did make a mistake and I did need financial assistance, if that mistake didn't pan out, I did have that safety net. Right. And that is not so. is it courage to some extent? Yes. It is, is it the courage to the extent where, wow, I might end up on the curb if I do this wrong? No. So I, yeah, but are I'm you eternally... down? Are you downplaying the kind of courage? Because at the end of the day, if you were on a curb, would you would you have not made the same mistake? Would you have slogged it out in the in the you know situation you were in? It's impossible for me to say. the The, the air that I breathe is one of security mm. and safety, okay. and so um, I'm fortunate and grateful. And so, yes, I, I do know that it took courage for me to take a leap. And even the people in my life who have the same safety net point out that, yes, Jordan, like I couldn't do what you have done. Right. Right. And, and what did people said, say when a... you did that? Were they were like, are you crazy, Jordan? Or were uh, they yeah. like, yay, Jordan, go for it. Um, I mean, it's funny you're saying that in the past tense as though they don't still say, are you crazy? Um, <laughs> but they do. Um, fortunately I've, I've, I've made enough gambles that have paid off, um, where people, I think have a little bit more faith in my intuition at this point. Um, but no, but that caveat that I mentioned is just to say, and I think it's universal is that nobody's success is the product of just their personality or their lone decision-making. Um, I am grateful to be surrounded by supportive people. I love your humility, Um, dude. Like your humility is like what people should strive for in terms of transparency, <laughs> humility, authenticity. Seriously. Well, I appreciate you saying that. But, um, you know, especially in the last three years, um, or I guess most six years, because it was six years ago that I get a call on LinkedIn, or so like a cold call on LinkedIn from who was six years ago, so now still a close friend and mentor of mine, the, the dean of faculty there at the time, Ronan McChristie at Salisbury School. Yes. Who just said, hey, come check it out. And... uh I was already admitted to graduate school for early uh, at, at Bank Street and um, decided, hey, I'll just go check out high school and see if I like it. And I loved it. And my wife is the most supportive person in my life without without question. Yes. I was like, yeah, just try it out. See what happens. Now, and, did you both move to Salisbury School? Because Salisbury yes, School did. is a boys 9 through 12 boarding yep. school. Where is it? In Connecticut? Yep. In Where Connecticut. Yep. Northwest Salisbury. quiet corner of Connecticut. Salisbury. Connecticut. And at, at this point, um, is your wife in, is she a full-on psychologist or is she still no. in school? So at that time, she was also in her own kind of path of finding what she wanted to do. She had been in the fashion industry a little bit, um, working on the business side of things. And then when we moved to Salisbury, she um, worked at a, um, a substance abuse uh, facility uh, doing intake and admissions, mm-hmm. helping people kind of get checked into rehab. She did that for three years. She did uh, two years. Excuse me. She did wonderfully while we were up at Salisbury. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, just to go back to the point of like making these, you know, finding these relationships is that I've 
been a yes person in my career for the last six years in particular. Yeah. And I'm blessed that my wife is somebody who's like also a yes person and wants to also be trying things and yeah. <laughs> sipping from the cup of life, I guess. Um, and so we did Salisbury for three years and then uh, we actually got married up there. Beautiful campus. Oh, what a beautiful place through. for a wedding. Mazel. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, four years ago now. Um, four but thank, years so ago. thank you. Um, and uh, and then at the end of that, as COVID was kind of ramping up, there were, my wife got into a, a clinical psychology PhD program in the city. We were planning on coming back. And um, as people in education know, you know, the, the kind of start of COVID was a time of tremendous insecurity in schools, not for the obvious reasons yes. of how are kids going to learn or are schools going to stay open, but like speaking from a teaching perspective, like there was a lot of job insecurity at that time, right? Um, particularly in the independent school world where, where your job is tied to admissions and nobody knew if private schools were going to stay open or not. Right. So there was all this like, my wife just starts this graduate school program. How are we going to pay the bills? We're living in New York City. And kind of very much out of left field, I get this opportunity to be a traveling homeschool teacher. Um, okay, and- pray Dude, tell, how did that happen? Wait, I have to interrupt. <laughs> I have to interrupt. Sure, go be- for it. Because, dude, oh my God, the bills, you move back to New York, and uh, that's a record scratch moment in your life, yeah. right? So literally, yeah. record scratch moment, start there, my friend, go. So the record scratch moment comes, of all places, on like a job posting website. Yeah. Um, okay. Like, I'm just scrolling through as people do from time to time and mindlessly. And I say one post that says, looking for a teacher that wants to travel. Who I'm doesn't? Like, oh, this is interesting. Shit. I want to travel. And I'm like, yeah. That's... yeah. Um, and so I just click on it. Um, I, I send like a, a kind of professional looking email I had learned to write at uh, when I was at NBC. Yeah. Um, I hear back pretty quickly from an education consultant that specializes in finding teachers for homeschool families. Yeah. So was it was it a third um, party, the education consultant, like someone who's yes. doing yes. who's hired mm-hmm. by the client? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yes. Um, who I still work with, wonderful, wonderful uh, company. Um, and so I had this brief phone interview. It went well, and then I met the family, and it turned out to be a very prominent family based out of the Middle East. Um, Stop. Stop. Just kept going from there. Stop. <laughs> Okay. Prominent family. What? What did you say about prominent family? Uh, it was a prominent family from the Middle East. Is, prominent... is all I'm at liberty to say. Okay, I am going to ask a question, and sure. you, you answer it the best way you possibly okay. can, because I know you're okay. under a gag order. Prominent okay. family. All right, my sure. friend. Prominent as in mansion or palace? Well, these that's just semantics. <laughs> um, that's just semantics, you know, he says. I think a better way to describe it is um, whatever word you want to use, mansion or, or palace, they were comfortable. Marble floors or wood floors? <laughs> Mark, stop. Depends on the room. Staircase or balcony? Both. <laughs> Those things don't do the same thing. Uh, uh, wait, hang on. Hang on. Elevator. Hang on. Manicured lawns with oceanfront property or manicured backyards with uh, palm trees and elaborate architecture. All of the above, I'm sure. All of the above. Okay. okay. All they right, Jordan. Thank you, sir. So, okay. So, Jordan, that takes you suddenly to the Middle East. 
And you have the opportunity to, are you teaching one child? Are you teaching a school of children? Are you, wait, wait, like, this is during COVID, right? So like there were learning pods, for example, set up all across Mm -hmm. the country where families Mm -hmm. would pool their resources together and hire a teacher. And that was how many teachers got along during the pandemic, right? Right. So was that sort of the model that you were, you know, sort of immersed into? It it was similar. So it was one family. So I was teaching um, the children of one family. Yep. um, And they had multiple teachers for different subjects. So they had a math teacher and they had a French teacher. You like the head teacher? Yeah. So basically I was hired to teach English. And to uh, manage the other teachers. And supervise the other so the, the curriculum and, and the homework and also executive functioning concepts and, and behavioral things as well. So you were um, you the know, coach, not... the principal, yeah. the teacher, and exactly. the sort of scheduler, perhaps? Scheduler was separate. a lot less. Schedule was definitely allocated to somebody else because that was above my pay grade. Hey, um, but... Jordan, what was it yeah. like flying to the Middle East? Like, what was flying? that? Specifically flying? What's that? Specifically, the flight? No, 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 no. I no. The the. <laughs> hmm. What? Uh, so you arrive in the Middle East, right? Mm-hmm. And you're like, game on. Like, were you nervous? Were you like, were you apprehensive? Were you like, oh, I can't believe, like, well, holy cow, it's hot. Like, you know, what am I doing here? Definitely. Well, definitely, holy cow, it's hot. But the thing to remember is this is. August of 2020. Okay. So all of my thoughts are the same as all of everyone's thoughts at that time, which is, what the hell is going on with this disease? Right. That's all I was thinking about. Right. Yeah. And so, again, my wife, God bless her, flew with me to the Middle East the first time I went there, and we were quarantined in a hotel for a month. Oh, my yeah. God. It was a month-long quarantine. And, and let me tell you, you know, in America, the quarantine was in a lot of ways, more of a suggestion than it was a law compared to what other countries did. Yes. And the country that I was in, it was incredibly, incredibly strict. Yep. Um, oh, they were not messing around with it. Um, and, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that and a lot of reasons why maybe, and I'm not a COVID expert, but like, you know, why America should have taken it more seriously at times. But also they were an older population, so they had a greater concern for the spread of this particular disease. Um, and not to mention people are indoors a lot in, in these countries because it's so hot outside. And so they, they took it very, very seriously. And so you were not messing around with quarantine there. Right. Um, so we were there, and this is long before the, the vaccine. Um, and so, you know, my, my, my salient kind of memory from that time is, you know, my quarantine lifted, but you had an app on your phone that told you when you were allowed to leave. Yeah. And... I had my SIM card had run out of data, so I had no way of communicating with the outside world. I said to my wife, I said, look, I can't take this anymore. It's a million degrees outside. We have no way of communicating with anybody. We're quarantined here. I am going to break the quarantine. I'm walking to a gas station to get a new SIM card. I'm out of here. And I walked in, and I'm not exaggerating here, 110 degree weather in the desert for felt like 10 miles. It was probably like a quarter of a mile along a highway. Oh, my God. Um, Listening to Billy Joel on your iPad. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Still terrified that when I get to the gas station, they're going to arrest me for breaking quarantine. Right. And I get in there and I say, no, I'm sorry, my app is broken. And they're like, oh, yeah, we don't care. Go on. 
And I was like, what? Oh, <laughs> my that? God. Yeah. All that stress, and they didn't even care. Um, but to you know, answer the question of, you know, am I stressed? How am I going to do this? I, I felt confident at the time. I was like, you know what? I, I feel confident in my teaching. I feel confident in the other teachers we have. I have mentors that I can ask for help along the way. The parents and I have a great open mode of communication. That's this great. is going to be fine. And, and listen, was it? It's not that it was... It's not that it was without its struggles, and certainly, and Christine, you and I have spoken about this many times, the key to a successful teacher is somebody who's able to adapt. Mm. Right. Um, can't, the kids are the variable. So it doesn't matter how much you're prepping or lesson planning or printing out curricula or whatever. If you walk into that room with a concrete set of what the day is going to look like, you are bound for failure. So you need to be allowing for wiggle room. You need to be able to change on a dime. And so I knew that going in, and so... Did everything go perfectly according to what I had planned? No. No. But that's okay yeah. because I had baked that into the plan anyway, um, knowing that things were not going to be perfect. Jordan, what? Um, but the kids were great. Yeah, I was going to say, awesome. what What were the kids like of this prominent family? Are they respectful? Are they yes. uh, Are they well-mannered? Are they, or are they yes. like obnoxious like teenagers or youngsters that you just like, oh, my God, power and privilege? You know? Um, well, here's what I'll say. Having worked with kids in schools for a long time. There's plenty of things that are wrong with schools. There's plenty of things that are wrong with homeschools. There's plenty of things that are wrong with education or parenthood or whatever. Not one of those things that are wrong can be blamed on the child. And I really, really firmly believe that. So I don't wow. really believe that there yeah. are students that okay. are in, you know, innately obnoxious or innately rude or innately kind. Or The kids are just the kids and they're figuring it out. Yeah. Um, and if I was to have a mindset of, wow, this kid is a privileged jerk. How dare he talk to me like that? Like, I, <laughs> I would not be talking to you on this phone call right now because I wouldn't be an educator anymore. Yeah. Right, but yeah. right. You have to go in with a sense of, these kids don't owe me anything. Right. These kids are looking to us for a sense of guidance of what they're supposed to do next. Right. And anytime a child pushes back or anytime, and I'm not even saying that these children did push back any more than normal. Um, anytime a child pushes back, anytime a child is rude, any child that, time a child seems privileged or is bullying or whatever, it is a sign of confusion and an asking for help because they don't know the other way to behave. Oh, um, okay. Interesting. Yeah. That is interesting. Huh. And listen, are there plenty of parents that are going to listen to this and say, like, no, this guy doesn't know what the heck he's talking about? That's possible. I could be totally wrong. I know that it's my personal philosophy, and having that personal philosophy affords me a lot of grace and patience for what are inevitable battles that happen in a classroom yes. um, or teaching. Because it, if it was easy, everybody would do it in education, and everybody would have be A-plus students, but it's not easy. Right. Um, so you got to go in with a perspective of these kids need help getting to where we want them to be. So, so Jordan, you have worked with this family in the Middle East. I know that you've worked mm -hmm. with other families. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if you can speak to, because you've also worked in a school setting in the classroom, there are probably inherent challenges that arise working independently for a family where you were on for such a long time and you have a, a smaller number of kids. And although I know that there is such benefit to working with kids one-on-one, -on -one, which is how I like to do it best, or in really small groups... Can you speak to the challenges that come to creating a homeschool environment um, and being the person to manage the curriculum, the delivery, and sometimes perhaps dealing with schedules or 
or students who may be constantly on the go or at the mercy of their yep. you know family schedules because i i understand that sometimes you work with families who are tremendously privileged and have opportunities mm-hmm. that your average student might not so yeah i mean i think that that's a pretty accurate assessment from the jump of what are some of the challenges that might be posed to somebody who's working in my situation. And as with any job, school, homeschool, whatever, yep. there's pros and cons, of course. And, sure. and first of all, you hit the nail on the head the first time when you said there's benefits working one-on-one. Yes. Um, you know, you get to really know the child, right? Yes. You know what makes them tick. You understand what they're passionate about. Um, you understand what they're curious about. You understand what they're probably more importantly not curious about. Um, you understand what their what their struggles are when it comes to school. Yep. Um, and I said to a student the other day, I said, everybody struggles in school in some way. Um, Absolutely. Th- th- there's just nobody that r- rolls out of bed and, and does it perfectly. Um, it's a really, really complicated thing to do well. Um, but in terms of the challenges, yeah, I mean, there's, there's benefits to having a structure. Yes. Uh, there's benefits to having other people you work with. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, I feel as though because I am a one-man operation a lot of the time, that my growth as a teacher has plateaued. Um, I'm not surrounded by colleagues that are pushing me and encouraging me to get better at all times. And challenging you, perhaps, in terms of, yeah. Like, I haven't had a teacher sit in the back of my classroom in far too long. And and you ask any teacher worth their salt, they'll say, that's the thing that makes me better, Um, is somebody telling me the ways I can be better. (laughs) Otherwise, you know, it's entirely incumbent upon me to be constantly self-assessing and reflective and searching. And while I try to do that, I have limited bandwidth and limited self-awareness, like right. everybody does. Right. Um, right. When it comes to working, you know, with the adults in the room, there's certainly, uh, and again, I've been so, so fortunate because the, the people that I have worked with are just like incredibly kind, humble, warm, loving people who have made me feel really like valued and respected. Um, I think that the key there is twofold. One is boundaries. Um, you need to be um, able to say, hey, I know you would love for me to make the kids bed. Not that they've ever asked me this, but I've heard stories about people in my line of work that have been asked this. Like, if the wow. parents ask you to make the bed, you have to say, well, actually, that's that's not what I'm here for. I'm, you know, I work from this hour to this hour doing this. Right. And of course, you make exceptions and you say, of course, I'll take them to their soccer practice because you want to. Right. But you need to know your own boundaries. You need to take pride in what you're there to do because, you know, and I can go on a much longer rant about the ways in which historically I think teachers have been undervalued and yes. have kind of adopted mentally that undervaluing of what they do. Um, you should take tremendous pride in what it is you do because nobody can do what you do. Um, and there's a reason that you're in that room with those parents. Absolutely. They, not only do they want you there, they need you there. Yep. These are people that are outrageously successful in a variety of fields in ways that I cannot possibly comprehend. And yet it is a tremendously reassuring concept to know that I don't care how successful you are, everybody wants the best for their children to varying degrees of, like, dedication to that concept. But people want what's right for their children, and a lot of people are confused about how to do it. And for whatever reason, I have garnered some level of respect and expertise in in how to help parents navigate that. And so I think that as long as you're able to set up boundaries and also able to look at the parents with empathy as they are concerned for the well-being of their child and I'm here to help them, then it's a lot easier to navigate those relationships. Um, 
Okay, Jordan, so think- I'm going to I'm going to ask you a question as a parent, right? And I sure. I would love for you to answer this question as 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 you might to any parent, every parent, right? Caveat, I don't have children. I know so. you don't have children and yes. and that's why I'm like I'm I'm curious because even though you don't have children, you dedicate your life to raising other people's children in some way right. shape or form. And I know that as you go into the summer, you are getting ready to take on another teaching position um, mm-hmm. as a middle school you know, teacher. And honestly, middle school to me is probably the hardest time to yeah, be teaching anybody. Um, it's such a, a, a space of time where I, I don't think I would ever want to be a middle schooler again. I just think it's a really tough time for <laughs> awkward, kids. Awkward, really. It is. Yeah. It's yes. awkward. You don't really know who you are. You're struggling to figure things out. What is the piece of advice that you would give to every, any parent of sort of a middle to high school, like somebody in that, in those middle school years, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a great question. I, I think that having worked with a lot of middle school kids and a lot of middle school parents, there's a common thread that I notice, which is just um, there's a lot of fear from both parties. Yep. Um, there's fear on the part of the kids for all the reasons you'd expect there to be fear for kids. Uh, I'm going through puberty. Am I smart enough? Am I popular? Am I saying the right thing? What am I going to be? What's next? All the questions that pepper the daily life of an adolescent is, listen, yeah. we're all sitting here right now with sweaty palms remembering our own seventh grade, you know, right. um, anxieties. So, so there's a lot of fear there. And on the other side of the coin, I think there's a lot of fear on the side of the parents, too, because the parents see that the child is suffering from anxiety and their own fear. And the parent then feels some sort of self-anxiety of, my child is suffering. What can I do? Right? It is in my blood. It's just like, I I feel a chemical motivation to help this thing that I brought into the world. Right? Right. And and all of this fear, it it, it can be really, really, it it can manifest in in what I think could be damaging ways. And one of the ways that I see that's pretty particularly damaging is parents, of, of middle schoolers, they see their kids are suffering either academically or socially or emotionally or psychologically or all of those things. And they think that the remedy a lot of the time is every time I sit down with my child at a dinner or at a lunch, I'm going to give them a really good life lesson that they're going to carry with them for the rest Guilty. of their Guilty. Guilty. And I, right. I see a lot of parents do this. Yep. And I simultaneously see a lot of kids that don't listen to those stories because Guilty. it's Again. not really resonating with them. Kids, 13-year-olds, don't really spend a lot of time thinking about what they'll be. You know, I, I see a lot of parents say, like, you should study for this math test if you ever want to be an astrophysicist. And the kids are like, I'm just worried if Becky down the hall likes me. Like, <laughs> kids are really focused on the here and the now a right. lot of the time at that right. age. Um, so if you're pouring on a lot of these kind of, like, big speeches or big stories and, like, oh, if you don't accept this now, bad things will happen. That is only standing to contribute to fear and anxiety that the kids are already producing themselves. So what and would be the fear. alternative? Like, what would be the alternative? Yeah. Like, how would you approach, if you could give yeah. us tools to approach our kids in a manner that is more productive, what would that be? Totally. Um, well, j- just to put a button on what I was just going to say is, you know, I had parents say to me, like, oh, I only have five more years before they leave the house. And I said, yeah, but you don't have five more years until they stop being your child. That's true. Like, you don't have five more years until you stop having an impact on their life and decision-making. Right. I'm 32 years old. I call my parents every day asking for help. I love so that. So the notion that when they're not, like, that when they stop being in high school, that that's truly 
when you no longer have any impact. I think that that's, that's false. You, yeah. you have as much impact as you're able to give as long as you're breathing. But in terms of the better approach is the thing that kids are, this is not news, the thing kids strive for is independence. And they don't just want independence like stay out of my room. They also want the independence to make the choice to come to you with their problems, to come to you with their questions, and to come to you with their, hey, mom, tell me about that time when you were in college and that guy broke your heart. Let them come to you. Give them this space that they need to come to you is really, really vital because otherwise they will feel suffocated and push away from you and seek out other avenues for solace. And simultaneously, kids don't always want to be talking about the things that are stressing them out. In fact, they rarely do. And right. so it's more advantageous for you to talk to them and show interest in the things they are interested in. This is like, I, I mean, again, this right. is not news to any parent there. Like, I, I, the, the number one thing that I've heard parents say is a problem with their kids over the years. My kid's on the iPad too much, right? Yeah. Okay. I understand My why there's anxiety there. I understand why there's anxiety there. I understand that there's some research that says, okay, it could lead to this, that, or the other. Sure, we can all be doing less of time on our screens. I'm not going to disagree with that. But instead of when you come home from work and you see your child on the iPad and the first thing you do is take away the thing that they chose to pick up, why don't you ask them what they're doing on it? Why don't you ask yeah. to play the game that they're playing? They love playing VR. Put on the VR headset. Yeah, it makes me nauseous when I put it on. But do you know how much of an impact it's going to have on the kids to see, wow, the adult in the room who I look up to, whether is, or not I tell them that or not, is, is interested in the thing interest. I'm interested in? Yes. It's a, that is a powerful moment. It's very interesting for me to hear the likeness between education and psychology. Right. Oh, well, yeah, they're um, intricately linked. And, Jordan, I can imagine the conversations you have with her, with your wife because that's her profession. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's – listen, like I'm listening to your stories and I'm oddly quiet, which I never am because I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking about my own interaction with my middle schooler, right, right. and with yeah. my high schooler. And I'm like, damn, I really messed up, well, you know, because like – Yes, well, I want... no, you didn't. No, you didn't. Well, no, I... well, you didn't in that. This, let me say this, Mark. You didn't mess up in that. Messing up is not messing up because it's an inevitability. You will not parent perfectly. You will screw up. It is a part of it. Of course. Yes. No, I I, I get and, that. And I I also believe that we just do the best we can as parents. You know, like and. Hey, I I have always said, and this is going to sound a little crazy, but I always said, we are supposed to screw our kids up, just enough. <laughs> just enough for them to need to go to therapy to do work right. on themselves. And <laughs> I believe that firmly because everybody needs to go and process the reality that is their lives at some point in time as they come of age. And if we are doing our jobs, we are fucking them up just a little bit, just enough for them to have to do their self-work. Just a, a little less than where we were messed up. Like what our yes, parents hopefully. said to us. A little less. <laughs> a little less. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Jordan, um, would you – or rather, do you still have an interest in these uh, – I don't know how best to say it. These um, working for independent families or is your focus now – uh, in a more of a, a formal school setting? where What what does Jordan want to do in a short term, rather, or near term? So, so um, 
I've loved working for independent families. Um, in the in the short term, and probably in the long term too, it is not the best career for me, um, just because uh, it's not as conducive to like having a home and a family because you yes. are at the the beck and call of the family, and so um, unless your family is situated where you can pick up and leave at a moment's notice. But um, that is not exactly what I want in the long term. I mean, I've, I've missed a lot of birthdays and I've missed a lot of, yeah. you know, Mother's Days. Yeah. I'm doing Mother's Day in Miami this week because yeah. I missed it last week because I was traveling yes. for work. Right? Yeah. Um, I'm excited to get back to schools. Um, just recently, I was in a middle school and I don't know. There was something melodic about hearing like slamming lockers and like yes, really linoleum. Like it just sounded very nice. To the me. squeak of the sneakers um, on the floor. Yeah, I liked it, man. I, yeah. <laughs> what I'd say is, and I think this is true in a lot of careers is I, I don't see them as separate chapters necessarily they're you know as a chapter in a book right one leads to the next and you take the information from the previous chapter and you integrate it into the current one yes at least that's what good writers do and so i think that i hope to integrate a lot of the skills that i've um kind of honed and, and the lessons that i've learned as an independent family uh teacher to become a better school teacher Absolutely. um how can i use this to foster more one-on-one relationships with my students. Even if I do have 13 students in a room, that doesn't prevent me from getting to know the intricacies of their mind and their heart. I mean, yeah, is it harder? But sure. But I've seen firsthand, because I've had the fortune to work with just one student at a time or just three students at a time, I know a dividend that pays. Right. Um, right. It's worth the time. It's worth that commitment um, to do it. And look, I know teachers are stretched thin. Um, but I wonder if there's things we can be doing less of so that we can be contributing more to getting to know our students on an individual level. And I learned this when I started to work at Salisbury because the thing that they told me at Salisbury, and, and it, it's again, comes with the privilege of being at a very small school in a very privileged location and all those things, is that there's so much time dedicated to getting to know them on an individual level. Because yes. otherwise you're teaching to a wall instead of teaching to a person. Mm. The kids are the variable. Jordan, is there is there anything you would like for us to sort of stress or anything you'd like to share in terms of ways to get in touch with you or, you know, um, give props to a school in particular that you've been impressed by or the one that you were about to go to as a teacher? Um, well, in terms of how to get in touch with me, you can go to Shameless Plug again. Um, you can go to the website for the College Access Project. Um, and look you. at the Who We Are page. And how is that right Axis spelt? I'm just curious. How A-X-I-S. Thank you. Yes. Like the Axis of Powers in World War II, but a lot better. Yes. Nicer. Very yes. good. Um, and um, I would say uh, I'm, I'm very, very excited to go uh, to my the new school that I'm going to in the fall. It's called the King School, just north of Stanford, Connecticut. And um, nice. They're a school that really, really prioritizes teacher development. It's the reason I, I chose them, um, because... Good schools are based on how they treat their teachers. Yes, absolutely. When you're looking at a school for your kids or you're looking at a school to work at and you're in the interview process or you're asking them, ask them what their teacher retention rate is. If their teacher retention rate is like over 80 to 90%, that's because teachers want to be there. Yes. And if you are taking care of your teachers, the students will exceed, uh, excel. Yes. I mean, there's just so many studies that point to that. The number one contributor to student success is the relationship that they have with teachers. And the thing that contributes to teacher happiness is professional development and how are they being taken care of? These are really, really important things. I always like to say, it's like, I don't care how many iPads you put in a classroom. 
if the teachers aren't happy, no learning's going to happen. Right, right. Um, Education so, is a business. You know, you have to treat well, your employees that, right. That well, education's a business for for better or worse. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the thing I'd like to you know leave the note I'd like to leave on is find schools that take care of teachers. If you're a school administrator or whatever listening to this, take care of your teachers. <laughs> Yes. Um, and, you know, if you're a parent, I think the number one thing I'd, I'd like to reiterate is um, it's a marathon, not a sprint with raising your children. Um, and you might think now is the most important moment to impart the most important lesson. And if you don't impart it, then all is lost. It just doesn't work that way. Mm. Um, it's, it's a, a continuum. really, really long process with, yes. as my dad likes to say, like, it's not a straight line. Like, there are ups and downs and curves and breaks and all those things are necessary and unavoidable. Jordan, thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing your wisdom. Thank you all for, for asking such wonderful questions. I love the, the theme of this podcast. I think it's great. I love anything that focuses on telling stories. I'm an English teacher after all. Yes, indeed. And, uh, thank you, sir. Yeah, thanks. thanks thank you, Jordan. You guys have a good one. We appreciate you, dude. Take care. Thank you, Bye-bye. Jordan. Bye-bye. This is The Zero Hour. I'm Mark Feertz, your co-host. And this is your host, Christine Chapman. Peace, thank y'all. Thank you so much.